0: Greetings from Reform Theological Seminary. It's great to be here with you, and I was pleased when I was extended the kind invitation by Andrew, who was a good student, and as I said in the early service, not just a good student, but a godly young man. It's one thing to be wise in academics; it's quite another thing to apply that wisdom in your daily life and your growth and grace, and so. Uh, did he slip out? I blew his head up by saying that in the first service, so maybe he, d- he didn't want to hear it again. But uh, it is great to be with you this morning, and we uh, want to open up our Bibles to the Book of Ruth. I invite you to. You'll need your Bibles, so uh, I know they print a few verses, but we're going to do a, a overview of the whole book. That doesn't mean we'll be here all afternoon. That just means we're going to fly at thirty thousand feet and and look at this. The question that we we want to ask ourselves is what we just sang. Do we trust the Lord? Well, I think what is being said in the hymn, if we really trust the Lord, then we would obey the Lord, right? Now, when you sing those words, did you feel uncomfortable with a couple of the stanzas? Or do you just sing the words and not think about it? (laughs) We're all guilty of that sometimes, right? Well, a couple of the verses basically were saying, if we trust and obey, then we just have no problems. No tears, no fears, everything's just going to be great. Well, that's not reality, right? That's just not true. I, I, I get the gist, I think of what they're trying to say. But you and I have lived life enough to know that life is hard, but God is good. Is God trustworthy? That is the bottom line question for you and I. Not just on Sunday morning, but on Tuesday afternoon when we're sitting in the doctor's office. On Friday morning when we get the pink slip. On Saturday night, parents, when you get that startling phone call and your teenager is out with the car. Do we trust God? So is He trustworthy? It's not just some academic or emotional exercise that you and I are to, to go through. No. Is he trustworthy? Is he a covenant-keeping, a promise-keeping God? Yes, he is. And that's why we can sing, and that's why we can pray. We pray to a, a God who is not disconnected, a God who is intimate with his people. We pray and we worship a God, and we read his book, this book of revelation of who he is our catechism asks the question what do the scriptures principally teach i know i could ask that and you could answer it boldly and loudly but i won't the scriptures principally teach first what man is to believe concerning god secondly what duties god requires of man So if we understand how we're reading our Bible and studying our Bible, we are looking in the Scriptures to see who God is. And to understand who God is and then how to respond appropriately. Not just in a worship service, but every day of our life. We sing the hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. And after church, every Sunday we sang it, I had an elderly... uh, pastor's wife, widow, who said, no, no, pastor, (laughs) those words are wrong. I need the Lord every second. And that's true. That's true. So can we trust Him? Well, it's interesting as we're going to look at the the book of Ruth, and you would think that by this time, probably Ruth was written after King David's kingship because of the genealogy that's at the end of the book. You, You would think that the children of Israel would have, would have understood. They would have trusted God and they would have been obeying faithfully, right? God made the promise in Genesis 3.15 after Adam and Eve sinned that he would send a conquering hero, a seed of the woman. That virgin birth was already promised. And then he made promises and covenants to, to Abraham and to Moses, to David. Remember the rainbows, a sign of the covenant made with Noah. They should have been able to look back and hear those stories and say, that God, our God, Yahweh, is is the one true and living God, and, and we're going to worship Him only, and we're going to serve Him wholeheartedly. They went into captivity, and Moses led them out. And you would think after 400 years in captivity, they would have said, okay, we're <laughs> We're going to get it right this time. But they didn't. Remember, they complained. The water was bitter. The manna, they got bored with the manna day after day. Got some meat, and then it turned rotten when they tried to hoard it. I mean, they were just complaining. God would not, could not satisfy them. And that's just like you, right? That's just like me, I know. I mean, so oftentimes we read these stories like, those were, could they not get it right? Even the disciples who were in the presence of Jesus, he said to them over and over, you have little faith, who are slow to believe, but that's me and that's you. And so we have to understand in this journey of faith, life is difficult, but God is good, God is trustworthy. And we can read our Bible and we can see how he has been fulfilling his promises from the very beginning. And so we look back, as Paul wrote in Romans 15, verses 3 and 4, that the scriptures previously written were for our encouragement and our endurance. Because we know that it's, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. We, we need the encouragement from the Old Testament scriptures so that we can run the race, run at a pace, that we can have endurance. Now, if you and I were going to put together the stories in the Bible, we would probably have a lot thinner Bible. We would probably leave out a lot of our family of faith, right? They're, they're part of our family of faith. All those things they did wrong. We, we'd want to make us all look better. But see, the Holy Spirit inspired all of these stories to be in here for our good. Because this past week, I I fumbled, I stumbled, I fell. And I'm sure you did too. Because we're humans. We may be justified sinners, but we're still sinners. And so Ruth is such a beautiful picture. It's been called the romance of redemption. It's a beautiful picture of journey with God. And so we're going to look at it and we're going to see snippets and... uh, Andrew is teaching Ruth in Sunday school. So, invite all of you next Sunday to come early, come to Sunday school. He's finishing up chapter two, and you can dive in a little more deeply. Encourage you this afternoon for your Sabbath reading in your families or by yourself to, to read Ruth and read it more deeply to get all of the goodness that's in this book. As we open the scriptures, I remind you that this is the inspired, the inerrant, the infallible word of God, and we are to receive it as such. I'm going to read Ruth, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephorites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons. And her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Well, here is the setting in the first five verses. And and it's a a flashback. It's looking at ten years. And it's bringing us up to to speed where the author is picking up the story. And then in verses uh, from six following, it's going to be about four months. Chapter 2 is one day. So there's the 10-year looking back, kind of bringing us up to speed. And then it's during the spring, during the the harvest. So three or four months. What do we see here? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So that gives us the setting that Ruth was written. I mean, the, the story is when the judges ruled. And you remember the last verse of Judges said that in those days, the people did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. Judges is about the cycle of downroll, downward spiritual spiraling to that point. Politically, socially, religiously, they were in a, in a free fall. But there's always hope, even in, in Judges, in any... The prophets or in Judges, there's always that hope that God lays out His His goodness, His kindness. Oftentimes we talk about the sovereignty of God, and we should, but God could be sovereign and all powerful and all knowing and everywhere present, and not be merciful, not be gracious, not be kind. But He is all of that and more. And so we look to the Scriptures to to understand who God is, so that we can trust Him more and more in the days when the judges ruled. So it was a horrible time, and famine was a sign of God's judgment on the people. And I'm I'm intrigued by what scripture does not tell us, especially in these stories. I mean, there are 10 years in just five verses. It doesn't tell us if Elimelech, which His name means, my God is king. If he prayed and he sought counsel, and after that time, then he led his family to Moab, where there was food. See, they were in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. But there was no bread in the house of bread. There was a famine. Did they pray and seek godly wisdom and and counsel, and they left to go to Moab? Or did they just say, the grass is greener and we're, we're going? We, we just don't know. I think the way the author has written it is, is to show us that they, they kind of cut bait and, and ran. Because of what happens. And so they go to, to Moab. They left the covenant community and they went to a foreign land that were pagan worshipers. And it seems like quickly that Elimelech dies. Elimelech dies, and then Naomi, which really, this book should be called Naomi. She's a greater figure than even Ruth. Ruth is a means that God is using for the redemption that we'll see later in the chapter. But, but Naomi has two sons, so she still has protection and provision and the hope of progeny, offspring, through them. Because they're married to Ruth and Orpha, but then they die, childless. Now we have a widow in a foreign land, a covenant widow in a foreign land with two daughters-in-law. And she, she has faced death of her husband, of her two sons. She's obviously fearful. I mean, so many things are thrown at her. And see, we can relate, right? Those things happen. That's real. Some of you have lost loved ones, maybe even recently. Some of you have loved ones who are hanging on by a thread that you will lose in the near future. We all face these difficulties in life. And so the question is, how do we respond? In, in this story, we're, we're looking at the sovereign covenant keeper showing kindness through the story and examples of those who are trusting and obeying, particularly Ruth and then Boaz. And so in in verses 6 to the end of the chapter, uh, you're probably familiar with this uh, dialogue. As as Naomi says, now I've heard that there is bread back in Bethlehem and so I'm going to go And her two daughters-in-law, which would seem to be the obligation, they say, we're going to go with you, Mother. We're we're going to travel with you. We're going to go back to Bethlehem with you. And she, some people call this anti-evangelism. She literally is pushing them back. Which means go back to your family for protection, for provision. Maybe you'll get a husband from your people she's also going to send them back to their gods and so in this exchange Orpha seems to be waiting to be pushed the second or third time and then she goes back she kisses Naomi and she goes back but Ruth it says clings to Naomi and says where you go I'll go where you live I'll live where you die I'll die and your God Will be my God. It's like a profession of faith. So in God's invisible hand of allowing them to go to Moab, he saves Ruth. Don't minimize that. Even if in their decision making process, they should have done more to get the Lord's guidance. As Proverbs says that we make decisions in our heart, but the Lord guides our steps. So in God's hand, he's always at work. He's at work in your life right now. He's at work in my life and I don't see it, right? It's the invisible hand of God orchestrating things. Sometimes they're in big crisis situations and sometimes they're just in the mundane going to work. But he's always at work. (laughs) And so Ruth clings to Naomi and finally she gives up and, and she says, okay, let's go. It's interesting at the end of chapter 1 that as they return into the city of Bethlehem, they've made this 50-mile journey together. And as they're walking in, can you imagine the, the women are starting to say, hey, does it, that looks like Naomi. And they're probably sizing her up and making comments about her new hairdo and the clothes she's wearing. and Probably not all, all kind statements, right? She left them and the covenant community. So they probably had some hard feelings toward her. But now she comes back and they, they greet her and call her by her name. She says, do not call me Naomi. Because that, that name means pleasant or sweet. She says, call me Mara, Which means bitter. She says, the Lord's hand has been against me. And so she recognizes the sovereignty of Yahweh in all that has happened. But she expresses her emotion. She's saying, I, "I'm bitter." You ever get bitter? Two honest people here shaking their <laughs> heads. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, I get bitter. I mean, we get discouraged, we get upset with people and our circumstances sometimes, and and that that can breed bitterness. See, we're we're emotional creatures. We're not just you know mind. We're God teaches us through our mind as we study the Bible. And then he moves our emotions that then moves our choices. So it's the cognitive and the emotive and the volition. We don't just make, we can do that external Pharisee choices without our hearts being engaged, without even understanding why. But See, when when we're connected, all three aspects, then we're bringing glory to God. And so she's being honest, no, I'm, I'm bitter right now. But see, the story here in Ruth is from famine to fullness. From famine to fullness. Here, she's bitter and she says, I went out full and I'm coming back empty. She doesn't know the rest of the story. And God is just sitting up there in heaven just saying, hang on, Naomi. And I think he's saying that to us today. Some of us are maybe in in a dark place, maybe it's in in the wilderness, maybe things are dry and bitter in our life, and he's just saying, hear my voice, hang on, hang on, I'm in control. Now that's what I I get uncomfortable with that hymn, because sometimes things don't really get better, right? Sometimes God calls us to to be in difficult situations and circumstances, and then we, we die in those circumstances, or our cancer doesn't get healed. Or our spouse leaves us. Or our children go out and never come back. I mean, that's, that's real life. We don't want to just put on the, the happy, clappy, you know, love Jesus face on Sundays. And act like we're not real humans that have hard times. That's what the Bible reminds us, and especially this story. Let's look at the first couple of verses of chapter two. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So here just the, the author just kind of introduces Boaz and calls him a worthy man, a man of character. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she, catch it, happened to come upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, the author's not trying to say this was just by accident or you know, coincidence. In in Ruth's eyes, she just went out. And again, the Lord directs our steps. Don't underestimate the Lord's working in the mundane choices that we. It's not always in the crisis situations. He's there in the crisis. He's there in the storms. But he's also there in the everydayness. (coughs) Don't set him on the shelf just for crisis. And so here we're introduced to a, a worthy man and so they've walked 50 miles. We don't know how long it took them to get there. But they're there first thing in the morning she jumps up and says Hey Naomi, we, we don't have anything to eat. Nobody is here to provide for us. So you really got to understand they're both widows. They, they don't have a protector, a husband. Elimelech didn't have any brothers to protect them. So so they're really in jeopardy. Naomi goes out. Hoping to find favor with somebody. And, and she providentially. This is God's providential care. She lands in the field that Boaz. This worthy man owns. Who happens to be a relative. Oh God is just directing this story. Right? He's bringing these two together. And so here. Here we can understand why a moment ago we read chapter 31 of Proverbs, right? Ruth, in the Hebrew Bible, follows Proverbs. So if we were reading what we read earlier, the next book would be Ruth. For that example of what a Proverbs 31 looks like, I mean, she is a busy beaver, right? I mean, did you catch all the things that she was doing in the scriptures? I mean, she's not a couch potato sitting there watching Netflix all day. She is busy. She's industrious. She's a a godly, virtuous woman who is putting her gifts and talents. They praise her at the city gates. Her children rise up and praise her. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, right? But a woman who fears the Lord will be greatly praised. So here, Ruth, that Proverbs 30 woman, woman is going out and she meets... Boaz. And Boaz asked his workers, now, who is that woman? Now, there there were poor people, and that's why they had the gleaning laws, so that the poor could come and basically get the crumbs on the boundaries of the field. My wife thinks Ruth was beautiful. Now, the Scripture never tells us that. Because she would say, oh yeah, Ruth was beautiful, Boaz noticed her. And I said, well, the scripture doesn't say that, but something caught his eye. So she you know, she probably was pretty, and he was a single older man. And he inquired who was this woman who was obviously working hard. In verse 7 it says, she only took a short break in the day, so the workers were given a good report of her. And so Boaz speaks to her and says, uh, "My my daughter... His tenderness see this this is godly character, his tenderness and kindness he 's showing to her if you 're thirsty, come up, my men are going to draw up water you- dr- you drink out of what they they draw, and when you 're ready to eat, come eat with us, and so the narrative goes on, and she she drinks the water and then th- this is a beautiful part in, in chapter in two verse fourteen uh Start in verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor. That, that phrase is throughout chapter 2 particularly. In other words, I found grace in your sight. That's what we say every time to the Lord. I have found favor, and we don't understand why. In your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. I mean, I'm just a poor girl trying to get enough bread to survive with my mother-in-law. And then verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. I mean, he's, it's overabundance of grace. So he's, so maybe my wife's right. Maybe she was a looker and he really, he saw that not only was she a hard worker, but she was pretty and he was a single guy. He may have realized, you know, okay, I, I'm a kinsman redeemer. You know, this, this may be God's hand bringing me a wife. And so he, he shows her kindness He said to the, he, she sat beside the reapers, so his workers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over, and she makes a doggy bag, and we'll see later, she gives it to her mother-in-law at the end of chapter 2 when she gets home. Such a kind, gracious woman. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. He's saying, don't just let her have the crumbs. Let her have some of the the bushel heads, and, and go ahead and just pull some out and throw it behind you. you know. And then she'll get it. He was not trying to embarrass her. He said it not in her hearing. He, he was saying to these guys, I want to show her extra grace and here's what I want you to do. And so she, she went home that night with five and a half gallons of barley. She, she had this bountiful take for just one day's work and that leftover food that her mother-in-law could eat. And so at the end of chapter 2, Naomi says, Keep close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. And right before that, she said, See, if you, if you follow his instructions and stay through the whole harvest, the barley came first, then the wheat, so that was about four months in the springtime. Uh, One, we're going to have provision. So that's gracious for him to say, just keep every day coming back to my field. But she also said, that's another good thing, that's protection, because you could be assaulted in another field. So Boaz is already providing protection and provision, and we're going to wait for the other P, the progeny, a little bit later. First of uh, chapter 3 then, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter... Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. This is strange, right? I mean, we're a little uncomfortable maybe. What is Naomi saying? Well, it's not salacious, so you can relax. It's culturally just something totally different. What she is saying is, Naomi, he has shown you abundant grace, and he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. I, I'm instructing you to basically propose to him and so it was the end of the the first harvest into the, the barley harvest so they would they would spend all, all night on the threshing floor eat a late meal there's a celebration because the the harvest just they, they had had famine for years and now now they have an abundance of harvest so they're celebrating and then it says that he just happens to when he's ready to lie down go and lie down at the end of the stacks of the barley that again is no small thing not, not in the middle because all you know, the other workers were crashing there but kind of private over in the corner and she went and she laid down as her mother-in-law instructed her uncovered his feet and just waited in our life sometimes there is the waiting and there's the doing and we need God's guidance to know when to wait and, and when to take action And so here she's laying there and and I'm sure she's nervous. And Boaz, it says, at midnight he wakes up and he's startled. Somebody's laying there. And who is it? He says, it's Ruth, your servant. And you're a redeemer. Basically, will you marry me? Will you put your wing over me and cover me? Give me protection and provision. And what's implied there and if the lord wills children that's what boaz prayed in chapter 2 verse 12 he said he was praying for her to for the lord for to surround her and cover her with the lord's wings and now boaz is fulfilling his prayer but see along this there's always this what's going to happen what if he says no I mean, oftentimes, since we, we know the story, we kind of don't think through it. But we step back at and we said, "Whoa, what if what if he says no? What would happen?" Well, that is one reason I believe she went in the night in case he he said no. It would not be a, a, a formal embarrassment. But he covered her and said, "Wait till the morning light, then go home." I it's I'm honored that you've asked me and yes I will do this but now here's the other obstacle he said yes but he also realizes there's someone closer there's a closer redeemer and we're sitting there reading the story and just think if we didn't have this and we're just hearing it for the first time and we're on the edge of our seat thinking oh that's great he said yes and he prayed that now she's going to have him cover her oh that's what? there's someone closer that that means he may not marry her God's in control of all this right so, so this story is moving forward and she stays the night and the early morning light he says you know pull out your apron and he, he pours all of this barley and she takes it home to her mother-in-law who's obviously been up since before the sun came up waiting for her to arrive and there, there's hope now for Naomi, who came back bitter, right? She 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 is anxious, saying, "God's gonna, God's gonna deliver us. God's gonna provide for us." Her bitterness is is becoming sweeter, like her her real name. So she sees Ruth come in, and you know what what happened? Well, he said yes, but there's a nearer redeemer. And, and I'm sure Ruth is, is rattled by all this. And at the end of that chapter, Naomi wisely says, you, you just, just catch your breath. He won't rest until this matter is handled. Uh, then we pick it up in the beginning of chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by, So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Okay, that's how they did business at the city gates. Remember Proverbs 31? Those at the city gates praise a godly woman. Well, they they praise a godly man too. Chapter 2, verse 1 says that Boaz is a worthy man. And then Boaz tells Ruth, we've all heard, the whole town has heard that you're a worthy woman. So these are two individuals with godly character. One who grew up in the covenant community and one has been brought in and saved from outside of the covenant community. And so he he deals with this nearer kinsman and and you'll find it interesting, he's Mr. No Name. The scriptures don't name him. I think it's because he's a greedy individual. Because when Boaz says, here's the situation. There's an inheritance. There's there's property in Naomi's family. She's returned. And you have the right to redeem it. And he's like, all right. That sounds like a great business deal. I, I'm in. I'm in. Sign me up. And then Boaz says, well, there is a catch. You have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and, you know, dot, 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 you know then that it'll all go back to the children that you all have. And he's like, well, no, 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 that'll mess up my inheritance and my financial situation, so I'm not. You go ahead and do it. Again, God was in control. He knew the guy was, if if this is true, he was greedy, he would say no, and Boaz would be the one to marry Ruth. And so in verses 13 and following, it says that Boaz and Ruth married and God gave them a child. We always have to be reminded of that. It's God who gives life. It's God who withholds the rain. It's God who brings the rain. It's God who withholds children in barren situations. And it's God who gives children. And here, Naomi, who's really the, the main character throughout the book of Ruth is, is overwhelmed with God's goodness Ruth has really gone silent these last couple of chapters it's really Boaz talking and Naomi but here at the end as, as this romantic redemption is coming to this point it says that they named him Obed and he was the father of Jesse the father of David What is that doing? That's pointing forward. And then that genealogy and those few verses right below it is helping us see the drama of redemption. What God promised way back in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned. Continually that drama of redemption moving forward. And here the hope of David who's going to be a godly king though with flaws points to Jesus Christ, who would be the son of David. And, and so all throughout the Old Testament, there are pointers to Jesus Christ. You see, we, we need a, a greater Moses. We, we need a greater Joshua. We need even a greater Boaz, a greater David, and that is God's own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, at the end of this genealogy it's a partial genealogy. You'll have to go to Matthew chapter 1 to read the full genealogy. And it, it says, see, that Obed fathered Jesse, who was David's father. So Obed was the grandfather of King David. And Boaz was Obed's father. But who do you remember who the parents of Boaz were? It says Salmon. It sounds like a southerner talking about something we eat, right? Going to have some salmon for dinner. I'm southern, so I can say that. Do you remember who his wife was? Rahab the prostitute. Isn't that amazing? Now, the scriptures don't tell us if Salmon and Rahab were alive during this time. I'm really curious about that. But let's assume they weren't. And the story told to Ruth, you, you know, my mother was a pagan like you and she, she was even a prostitute. God saved her and she married my dad, a godly man, and she became a godly woman. And, and so there's hope. And so we, we read that, we look at the, the lineage in Matthew's genealogy, those five women of Christmas, as I call it, and only Mary is one who was an insider and who was pure. The others were outsiders and had come from rough backgrounds. It reminds us that God brings in his spiritual harvest from the ends of the earth. He brings it in not just from good church-going families. He does that. But also from those who grow up in the worst circumstances with non-believing parents. And it also tells us that God can use us if we come from those backgrounds. God isn't looking for perfect people to use. He's looking for people who will trust Him and who will obey Him and who will serve Him. And as Paul writes to Timothy, even when we're faithless, God is faithful. And so friends, this story reminds us that God is always at work. He is truly working all things together for our good and his glory let's pray gracious Lord we see in this story how your providential care is fulfilled to Boaz and Ruth and Naomi and through the lineage as they are part of our family of faith we look back not just at these as distant disconnected stories but Stories of faith of our family, those who preceded us. Pray that you would meet us where we are in our journey this morning. That you, the great covenant-keeping, the great lover of our souls, that you would meet us in this moment where we are as we approach the Lord's table, that you would comfort us, that you would even convict us if we need that, that you would encourage us to run the race, always keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For we prayed in his name. Amen.